Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Junior Podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with my friends, Russ Horowitz and Leanne McLean. This is Delia Gold and excited to talk about a breaking new paper about everyone's favorite topic, eyes and what to do with them. We are talking about pediatric point of care ultrasound of the optic disc elevation for increased intracranial pressure, a pilot study. Everybody knows the evaluation of the optic disc can aid in diagnosis of increased endocranial pressure. However, direct ophthalmic exam is difficult, and providers are often not confident in their ability to perform the exam and interpret their findings. In comes POCUS to save the day. We do know that from prior studies that POCUS can be used to evaluate the optic nerve head for optic disc elevation as well as optic nerve sheath diameter, but it's still not clear, especially in pediatrics, which ultrasound characteristics of the optic nerve head perform best in detecting increased ICP in kids. Optic disc elevation is a new thing for me. What about you guys? Well, I'm a bit biased. I do uh, work at the center where this study was done. And so we've been using optic disc elevation as part of our evaluation while the study uh, analysis was ongoing following the time that they were recruiting the patients for the study. So since about 2016. So you're ahead of the game per usual. Ahead of the game. Yeah, for Love sure. It. I have seen a couple of the things that came out about it, but I must admit, because I learned optic nerve sheet diameter, that's kind of what I thought about. And I've been able to see the elevation, but until reading this, I wasn't quite sure what its clinical or sort of research-related importance was and how it was going to help me as much. So I'm really excited to get into the details. Yeah, that I agree, Russ. I would notice the elevation and kind of see that it was associated with people who had increased ICP, but I wasn't as sure about the numbers and the measurements and the cutoffs. So in comes this paper to explain it to me, and I'm very excited. So talking about the questions they focused on, what are the performance characteristics of optic nerve sheath diameter, optic disc elevation, as well as a third measurement known as the optic disc width at mid-height, which has an incredibly long acronym, and we were trying to find a rhyming name for it, but we're just, I, I think today's just not a good rhyming day. This measurement was created by the study authors, and there's an awesome figure for you guys to reference that I would strongly suggest for just teaching in general for all the correct way to obtain measurements, all three measurements. For this study, the population, of course, was pediatric, so less than 18 years old, presented to the ED at the primary study site between September 2011 and July of 2016. This was a retrospective study, so they relied on their POCUS archive, and it needed to contain at least one high-quality ocular POCUS video clip of at least one eye of the patient. What was awesome, I think, about this patient population is they also required that the ICP be determined in the 48 hours after the POCUS scan was performed, and they had pretty strict criteria of increased ICP. You were allowed to use a combination of neuroimaging, lumbar puncture with opening pressure, and or findings during neurosurgery that served as the reference standard to determine the presence or absence of increased ICP. And it was considered positive for increased ICP if any of the following conditions were met, a neuroimaging report that indicated definitive signs of ICP elevation, an LP with opening pressure of greater than 28, or a neurosurgical operative report indicating signs of increased ICP. Notably, normal neuroimaging alone was not sufficient for defining 
your ICP. So it needed you needed to have actual OR findings, LP findings, or imaging findings that was positive. So there's very strict definition, and I think very much aided in good test characteristics. For exclusion criteria, they obviously would exclude any patient with known ocular and neurologic conditions that might affect their ocular POCUS measurements if there was no high-quality ocular POCUS clips present or there was no ICP determination within 24 hours from the scan. Leanne, since you are very familiar with this, I would love to hear more about the design of the study. Absolutely. Uh, So the design, as you mentioned, was a retrospective observational cohort study of patients in a single center during the study period. And that period was the first five years of -of point-of-care ultrasound teaching in our institution. Um, What they were really doing in this pilot study was trying to survey a bunch of different values looking for diagnostic accuracy. So we talked a bit about optic nerve sheath diameter, uh, both uh, eyes versus single eye, in addition to the optic disc elevation which we will go into in the results, as well as their optic disc width at mid-height evaluations for single eyes, uh, as well as both eyes. So throughout all of those tests, they were really looking at a few different values with them um, when they were talking about defining the numbers. So they used interrater reliability for all of these different values, where they used blinded uh, PEMPOCUS trained physicians to look at the parameters and confirm that the interpretations were correct. But I think it's worth getting into how these scans were done. So overall, there was a pretty good variety of people who did the ultrasounds. There were pediatric emergency physicians. uh, There were pediatric POCUS fellows, as well as attendings who had previously completed a POCUS fellowship, sort of those who had achieved mastery in point-of-care ultrasound for pediatric emergency use. The scans themselves were determined to be high quality. And so what that really means is you want to see that optic nerve running parallel to the ultrasound beam, meaning it's right at that bottom of the posterior chamber and intersecting with the retina in a perpendicular way. In that way, we're able to visualize the optic nerve sheath with clear outer margins. And we're also able to look at that optic disc elevation at the base of the posterior chamber. The POCUS expert that performed the measurements also had the value of magnifying the the images. So for optic nerve sheath diameter, the images were magnified times two. And for the other two values, looking at that optic disc elevation, they were measured times three. Uh, They also went through to select high-quality images from cine clips taken of these eyes. Uh, That's the sort of standard that we employ in our institution. We take six-second cine clips of the majority of our point-of-care ultrasound, and then we select individual frames of those images to measure after we are complete. So in terms of measuring optic disc elevation, the way that we teach it in our institution is basically if you're looking at your optic nerve, you're seeing this disc elevation present there. It looks like a tiny mountain present in the posterior chamber of your eye. And what we're talking about when we say optic disc elevation is really what is the height of that mountain. So we want to find the tallest point of it and measure down to that curve of the posterior retina. So thinking about that as your true height of your optic disc elevation uh, is what we would traditionally use as that measurement. This is really nice because one, it's quite easy to see, and two, it doesn't allow for that dual measurement of optic nerve sheath diameter where you have to measure down and then measure across to get your your value. So it's a single measurement, which is really, really handy for instruction and teaching. Also ease of use for people who may be infrequent point of care ultrasound users. 
And I would say in my experience doing it that it's just it's just easier to see than the sheath when you agree since you do it more. Uh, I feel like the sheath sometimes maybe it's like the anisotropy or something about the length of the channel that it makes it harder to see the edges, whereas this ODE measurement is really straightforward. And one of the things that we sort of, you know, play around with when we think about this is really thinking about it as sort of sonographic papilledema. We're really mm. visualizing what papilledema is in direct fundoscopy. And so in saying that, we still see those same false findings of papilledema or pseudopapilledema, and we're also seeing it likely in the same time course of disease. So some of the literature around optic nerve sheath diameter was really optimistic, saying, is this an early predictor of some of those things that then go on to cause papilledema? Because first the sheath will widen and then the disc will elevate. Well, if we're moving to optic Mm. disc elevation, what we're really doing is saying, instead of taking a drone photo of papilledema through fundoscopy, we're taking a landscape photo of the papilledema with our ultrasound. That's a cool way to describe it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think for people who are thinking about papilledema, they can sort of visualize what it would look like, even though doing direct ophthalmoscopy is hard. This is the, I think everyone's representation of what they would imagine it would look like. You wanna go to the results, Russ? Yeah, that'd be great. They were very regimented in how they went through this process. There was a total of 899 cases that were potentially includable, but they excluded 849 of those cases because either they couldn't get complete studies done or they couldn't get a complete review. So as we make our way down, we had 40 cases and then those were imaged, three images for each eye, and then the mean was taken. So the study patients had a mean age of 11.4 years and 26 of those subjects had increased ICP. In the paper, they did go through details about the types of conditions that the patients had. uh, And I find that particularly interesting because it's a smattering of conditions. And I would encourage all the listeners to go through, this is table one, to look through that relevant bit of information. Since we're focused mostly on the ocular disc elevation, that's the stuff I'm gonna talk the most about. And that had the best characteristics of all the three studies. The area under the curve was 0.96, pretty fascinating. So the elevation cutoff that was most specific and sensitive was a number of 0.66 with a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 93%. A subset of the studies was reviewed by a second reviewer, 10% of those. And there was a great agreement between the people who did the scanning and then this expert reviewer. Including in this detail, I mentioned a little bit that we had evaluations of both eyes. What they did was they would look at both eyes and average them together to give your highest. And then included in our chart is the ocular disc elevation B for both, or ocular disc elevation H for the highest total. And notably for the optic disc elevation measurement, I think it was the, the it did best for both both eyes and highest compared to the other measurements. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. To build on what Leanne was saying, that this is sort of the, um, like a landscape view of disc elevation, that in conditions that give false or pseudopapilledema, you will also see and disc elevation to mirror the idea that this is truly 
papilledema or pseudopapilledema that we're seeing. So in case is of things like um, Drusen, you will still see that elevation. And then it just uh, relies on the expertise of the sonographer to identify what those clinical conditions are that could mimic true disc elevation. So this is a really interesting and novel study. Some of the strengths I found was definitely the confirmation of increased ICP, ICP using the strict definitions, as well as introducing this new measurement that has not been talked about in the literature period and specifically pediatrics. What other things did you guys think was were good strengths of the study? I think the detail that the authors went through about acquiring three images for each eye, averaging the eyes, and doing three different types of measurements shows how diligent they were and careful mm-hmm. they were about going through this. In addition, the sonographic techniques of ensuring that you have a perpendicular view of the optic nerve sheet and uh, enlarging the image at two times and three times shows how careful they were about acquiring these pictures. Yeah, I see it really as both a strength and a limitation, to be honest with you, right? We talk about the small population size of being 40 out of the almost 900 ocular pocus examinations, and that's really because there weren't a lot of those patients that received that intervention that would be considered that gold standard or didn't receive the quality of point of care ultrasound that we would expect from uh, from this for the study. We're taking this as a pilot group, we're being very specific, we're being very accurate, we're taking a lot of time with zooming in and really, you know, great expert eyes taking a look at the ocular pocus scans to determine these values. But those also serve as some limitations for applicability until further larger prospective studies are done. Because what we're saying is, can we create this really ideal environment where we have a perfect scan read by an expert who's using Zoom and has the ability to record these, you know, three or four images with the balancing measure of that outcome of saying, yes, we've got elevated ICP on LP with opening pressure. Yes, we've got elevated ICP on neurosurgical intervention. So it's really like this small and very precise capsule collection of eyes where you're getting a really good sense of sort of that relationship. But the next study is really how are we going to make this applicable and valid in different environments and with different users and different machines and different pathologies. I think, you know, in our hospital, we scan eyes quite a bit. We see a lot of drusens. We see optic neuritis. We recognize all of those pitfalls of optic disc elevation. But that education also has to happen in conjunction with teaching this new method because we have to understand that disc drusens in pediatrics often isn't calcified. It doesn't have that kind of traditional look that you learn about in the adult literature. And so you're you're adding all these different layers onto the study, which is going to require a pretty big shift in how we're educating kind of across point of care ultrasound when we think about optic disc elevation. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you come from it with a wealth of knowledge that makes sometimes knowing more makes it harder and is ignorance is bliss. But at the same time, as someone not as experienced in doing this particular measurement, it it still is just kind of intrinsically easier for the eye to capture. It's easier to kind of intrinsically understand this excellent highly technical and expert-driven study is what is absolutely needed for a pilot study. But I I feel pretty optimistic that when you expand it out into the kind of everyday PEM POCUS user, 
and even just the PEM physicians that this may be able to, it may like hold water. So I'm pretty excited about this study. I'm excited too. I think it's so great for that. And, you know, the ease of the measurement, that visual recognition of that mountain in that sea of black of the posterior chamber, it's just much easier to teach. It's much easier to understand, you know, families understand it colleagues understand it. There's really a shared language there where the optic nerve sheath diameter, I think, fell a bit flat. I have a question for the group is, how do you think we can move from the, the super expert who's done a thousand ocular scans to the regular PEMPOCUS user who's done some much more smaller number to say, yes, these people are gonna be competent. I guess you've set the high bar and now the subsequent studies would say, what about a more novice user? How can he or she get to that same level of expertise? It's a good question. I think part of it comes down to routine and, and really working it into your practice as you're learning to do it and building on the strengths of wherever you're training. If you have POCUS experts there to help establish you know, your own skill set in acquiring these images and then interpreting them. I think we can do a lot with asynchronous interpretation software, and I know there are things coming down the pipeline in terms of helping people improve their interpretation skills, but it's going to come down to the machine you have, the amount of time you do it, understanding the patients you're using it in, and the comfort with it. But I would argue in pediatrics, a lot of people are foregoing fundoscopy period, in many of these kids. And so even just a slight addition of another test that's going to help you make your choices for a sedated CT scan or a sedated MRI scan, which carries its own risk, a possible admission because of NPO status issues and other things, you know, we're really adding value in that age group where many practitioners are just foregoing fundoscopy because it's a two-year-old with undilated eyes in the middle of a busy emergency department. And and that's the reality and, and the promise of this. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that there will be uptake across centers once we start to get more data in and publish more around this type of study. Can you talk a little bit about um, how often you're doing these and what patients, because I often think about the ocular ultrasound as not the most common of scans, but when you describe the details about how often you use it, it made me start thinking about this could be something that we do more routinely and then therefore gain a lot more expertise in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my personal practice is to do it in every single patient presenting with headache. Uh, I do it for patients with sort of intractable or nonspecific vomiting that don't really seem to have a viral etiology. There's no sick contacts or diarrhea or fever or anything else going on. I'll often do it in those patients as well. Uh, and it is something I do, I would say, on the majority of my shifts, at least for one patient. Well, that puts it in a whole new context about when it can be used and really makes me think about it as an additional way to screen for increased intracranial pressure as opposed to like an eye problem. And then you can also add the eye problem in. To, into yeah, double absolutely. Duty. We haven't even talked yeah. about eye problems. Right, we haven't even, even talked about I mean, that's a big old, that's a big bag of problems. And yeah. uh, uh, luckily, ultrasound helps with all of them. I'd like to go over the take-home points of this really amazing article. We all agree, whether we want to admit it or not, that fundoscopy is very challenging People do not feel comfortable doing it. They don't feel like they got adequate training. And it is also part of a necessary exam for a really high-risk complaint in a peds emergency department. So we need a better way 
to make sure our patients are safe. Ocular pocus has been evaluated to replace fundoscopy in theory, but they're not well-established pediatric normals and accurate measurements um, are often difficult to obtain either because of skill of the user or that real squirrely toddler and more practice is needed. But this paper demonstrates, you know, um, at an institution where they do have a well-established program as well as both POCUS experts and ocular POCUS experts, um, that ODE or optic disc elevation can be used as a possible measure for increased ICP, both from a more novice user as well as an expert user, as Dr. Leanne McLean would say. Um, that it is more easy to obtain uh, as opposed to the traditional and more established optic nerve sheath diameter. And in this study where they were able to compare all of these different measurements on clips, OD actually performed better both for the highest number measurement as well as both eye measurements, which is just fantastic. We do need more studies. There was a small number of patients, probably due to the retrospective nature of the study as well as the very high threshold needed to define increased ICP, but that's completely expected and what we'd want with a pilot study. Now going forward, we can look at maybe larger site enrollment, including people all the way from the ocular POCUS expert down to the average PEM attending and see if, if it's generalizable and then could maybe be used kind of as regularly as Leanne does for all of us, because that would be awesome. So thank you so much for listening to the Ultrasound Gel Junior podcast. It was so great hanging with you guys and we'll hear from you soon. Thanks, Leanne and Russ. Thanks. Bye. I think that I would eat that up with a spoon. <laughs>